I'm in Edinburgh. Ah, fab. Yeah. It must be festival time. It's festival time. Yeah, everyone's getting very excited. Yeah, there's just such a nice buzz around town. All the performers are in and rehearsing and yeah, it's very exciting. And did I see on Twitter that you've got an event actually? Yeah, well I'm t- talking at Edinburgh Book Festival, so nice. which yeah, just seems nuts, you know, to be looking through because there's so many programs, you know, like these huge programs full of all the talent are coming to Edinburgh to perform, and it's like yeah, I'm one of them. That's pretty cool. Hello, my name's Emma Anderson, and this is Unfinishing. I am delighted to say that my guest this week is Anna Fleming, who is a climber and a writer. In January of this year, Anna published a book called Time on Rock, A Climber's Route into the Mountains. Very excitingly, it's just been shortlisted for the highly prestigious Wainwright Prize for Nature Writing. In Anna's words, Time on Rock is a nature writing book about rock climbing. In it, she traces how she learned to climb and she shows how being a climber can give you a privileged and distinctive physical understanding of different landscapes. I wanted to talk to Anna because Time on Rock does a wonderful job of illustrating how climbing for her is an ever-changing and ever-developing way of life. In other words, something that very much can't be finished. In our conversation, we talk about how climbing can be affected by other aspects of life, such as the people who you choose to climb with, where you live, and death and injury among members of the climbing community. And right at the end, Anna also has some good tips about which kinds of seabirds it might be best to avoid while climbing. If listening to Anna's interview prompts you to think about an unfinished or a private project that you have and that you'd like to talk about, please get in touch. You can reach me by emailing unfinishing.pod at gmail.com or you can grab me on Twitter at TrueBaggleRag and those contact details are in the show notes if you didn't quite catch them. So... I actually wanted to kick off with something that you've mentioned to me in the email, which is that you said that you have one of those brains that loves to complete things, but there's also plenty of things that you haven't finished. So I kind of have to ask you about what the things are that you haven't finished. Yeah, I mean, that is very true. I love ticking things off and getting things done. That's very satisfying. And the timing, yeah, you can get plenty done. So that's always enjoyable but things I haven't completed I've got any number of um of writing projects mm-hmm. that I would love to do whether that's you know shorter pieces that I start and write and start drafting in journals and get really excited about and have all these ideas and then things happen and life gets in the way and somehow it doesn't get finished and it's always there nagging away at me like oh go back to that and get that thing finished. (laughs) So you've mentioned there that it kind of nags at you so what's the experience then like of having that brain does it mean that you put too much pressure on yourself or, or do you think of it in a kind of more motivational way? Yeah, I try not to put too much pressure on myself because that's not very nice. Or I'll put the pressure on when I know I'm going to complete. So when writing Climb on Rock, I knew I was going to complete that project. And it was a big project that was 
pre-organized and pre-planned and I had an advance and a contract and and so I had I had the big plan and I had the big structure and I had the deadline and so I absolutely knew that that was going to be completed on time and and I wanted to do that at the highest possible standard so I did put a lot of pressure on myself for that one the other ones that I'm not completing that are unfinished are the ones where I really haven't put the pressure on myself and therefore they're not going to get finished and I mean, I see them as existing in in quite a nice complementary way, I suppose. There's partly the frustration, I suppose, of of not finishing them. But then there's also just that excitement of having all those different possibilities Mm. and imaginative strands running around. I see them a little bit as like a lot of different rooms within the house of my imaginative mind. And and I can go inside and spend a bit of time in there and, and get excited and stimulated by the ideas and, and then come out again because I don't need to spend a huge amount of time in that room because I don't need to complete them. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> That's a really lovely way of thinking about it. And I think it probably does save you from potentially driving, driving yourself a little bit crazy because if you were trying to finish all of those things, that would be far too much. Yeah, I mean, that would just be impossible. It's, since January, I've basically been on tour with Time on Rock. I've done mm. 30 events, which, you know, in person and, and online and on Zoom, all over the country from northern Scotland down to London and Kent. And I love doing that performing style and, and all mm. that travel. But it's also very full on and it's such a gear shift from when you're a writer, you're very solitary you're inside your own head and your imagination and whereas once the book comes out you become the author and you're there standing alongside this book that you've written and you're really trying to sell it yeah and you're interacting a lot and you're being very friendly and very chatty and the social butterfly is coming out (laughs) and that is not good writing time I've written bits over the last six months but it's all it's all very scrappy and you know short pieces have given me a lot of satisfaction and I have honed you know a number of smaller pieces to a standard that I'm quite happy with and finish them but yeah in terms of a longer more sustained thing there's just absolutely no chance. So I'm really interested by the distinction that you've made there between the performative element and then the the quieter more solitary more more reflective period that is the writing itself. Do you have the personality to kind of switch between those things because it seems to me like one would suit an extrovert and one would suit an introvert yeah I do I people who know me would say I'm very much an extrovert and this is probably why I find writing quite tough is that thing of having to sit on your own all the time and hammer away at these thoughts when Mm. Really, you know, I want to be out talking and playing and hanging out with other people. And I, you know, I love group work and and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I do find that aspect of the writing process quite difficult. But then I also really enjoy those places that it can take you when when you really ride it and and getting to do the performances afterwards. It's just great crack. I mean, you know, I did... (laughs) I did drama up to A-level and loved performing, but then never took it any further than that, partly because I could see how horrendously competitive it was (laughs) to get into the performing arts and and how bad the money was. And I thought, absolutely not. So you chose writing instead? (laughs) Well, I think writing chose me somehow, yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> and where does climbing sit in that? Where on the kind of scale between solitariness and reflection and sociableness does climbing sit, would you say? Well, it's the perfect marriage of both. Because, I mean, the sort of climbing that I love doing, well, there's a, a couple of types of climbing. I really like doing indoor climbing, which is just very mm. sociable. And you're always around other people and it's warm and it's light and it's friendly <laughs> and you can have the crack and yeah. you can get very physical and have a good workout. And that's indoor climbing. And, and it's generally always quite good fun. The outdoor climbing that I love doing is traditional rock climbing so that's when you're out using your own equipment to place the safety protection and following your own lines and that might be on a piece of rock that's 10 meters tall or it might be a cliff that's 300 or more meters high and when you're out in those places I always go out with a climbing partner, so I'm always with someone else and we've always got the crack and, you know, we're making these decisions together and we're going into these things together. So there's that sociability of it. And, and sometimes I'll be out with a much bigger crew, like I'm just back from Shetland, yeah, where I was climbing for a week with a bunch of pals from Edinburgh and that was great crack, all of us, you know, in it, talking about the yeah. routes and, yeah, the places and seeing all these sites together. And there's just a wonderful sense of camaraderie and community to it but then also part of that climbing process as well is you spend a lot of time sitting on a belay which is mm. for those who don't know what that means it's it's when you're paying the rope out for your climbing partner so you're climbing your partner is climbing and you're in charge of their safety so if they were to drop you'll catch them with with your belay device which is this little metal device that catches the rope so you've always you've always got to pay attention to a degree um, and be mindful of the rope and you're paying it in and paying it out but sometimes you know it can take a really long time for that climber to do that pitch for any number of reasons they might be having a very hard time and, and it'd be quite stressful but that's quite rare generally you know things do just take time and and so it's then you enter this very you can enter this very tranquil meditative mm. place where you're just sitting on a rock you can't move you can't do anything really apart from mind the rope and your bum maybe goes a bit numb as you're sitting on the <laughs> rock you know you can really feel your whole body slowing down because there's there's just nothing else to do and and on Shetland say I was sitting there and watching the waves crashing in maybe staring at some Oh, there were some starfish in the rock pools. That was quite oh, cute. Lovely. Or like the kelp forest, watching the kelp forest move beneath the waves. Or, you know, a bird might fly over or a seal might appear or you watch your partner. And that's quite a quiet time when you're sitting like that. And then also when you're the one doing the climbing as well, that can be relatively solitary because you're the one at the front on the sharp end of the rope leading and, and you're alone in that moment making those decisions about how to move your body around the rock, weighing up everything that's there to make sure that you can move in a safe and efficient way. So yeah, so climbing is that brilliant mix of you're quite intensely inside your own head or out in the landscape and with partners. And this brings us actually quite nicely onto something else that I wanted to ask you about, which is the place of close relationships in climbing. And this is partly a selfish question because I recently broke up with the person who introduced me to climbing and it does feel very different 
to negotiate that with uh, either by myself or with different people. So I guess kind of my my question is about what the place is of close relationships in climbing. I know that in the book you describe climbing with lots of different people. I guess that makes for different kinds of experiences depending on who it is that you're with. Yeah, oh, it's so variable how how people climb with and yeah, yeah the climbing breakup, relationship breakup, <laughs> and that is so common. Yeah. <laughs> in Helen Mort's book, A Line Above the Sky, you know, she's writing about an ex who she used to climb with and in Time on Rock as well, you know, I do write about an ex who I climbed with and quite a lot of my formative climbing was with this boyfriend who then, mm. when we broke up, that was... I mean, besides the sort of relationship, it was quite devastating on a climbing level because it was like, yeah. this is this is who I go out with. This is who I know how to, to be out with and be safe with. And now I've got to find other people to climb with. Yeah. And, and that can be quite imbalanced. You know, I've heard from other people, you know, there can be a gender element to it where mm-hmm. essentially the guy introduced the girl to it and it was all his equipment and all his knowledge. And then they break up and she fails to keep it up because it's Mm. his sport and his activity and his partners fortunately that's not happening as much now as it used to in the past and and it's great because women can find so many more female partners to go out with that you're not dependent on the boyfriend to (laughs) to show you the ropes yeah yeah. but yeah yeah so since coming out of that relationship which I mean that was years ago now Mm. I've climbed with so many different people I have so many different partners that I go out with and I really enjoy that because you meet loads of different people you have different Mm. crack with them you learn different things from different climbers but other climbers are much more circumspect and will only have you know one or two very trusted people that they go out with and and that's it and I wondered as well if you could say a little bit more so in the book you kind of talk about climbing as being a way of life and how that fluctuates so your relationship with climbing will fluctuate as other things are going on and I wondered if you could a just kind of describe a little bit more about what you mean by that but also how long it took for you to feel that climbing was a way of life rather than only a pastime or a hobby or whether that was an immediate thing? Yeah, lovely question. Um, so yeah, climbing did definitely start for me as, as just a sort of a hobby and a, and a curiosity and a thing that you do. And, and I would meet those people who were the climbers and they all seemed slightly unhinged, uh, very, very obsessive, very determined and, you know, seemed to be taking risks that I thought were crazy. But actually, I just I just needed more experience. And then the things that I found so frightening and, and seemed so dangerous at the start. I realised actually weren't as long as you've got the safe systems in place. Mm. Yeah, so it was climbing indoors. It was very much hobby then for me and it was pastime. And it was when I moved to the Lake District, I really began to see it more as a way of life. And that was partly through the locals who I met there, some of mm. whom were climbers and they very much lived inside that world and it was a very different thing for them to the urban indoor climber or the like university club climbers where you know it was a sort of holiday status 
these guys, you know, were like from the fells. They'd been brought up around the rock and it was just fundamental to their way of approaching the land that they lived in was, was to be out, to be climbing, to be on the rock, to know all the cliffs and all the aspects and all the root names and all the culture. And so I started to see that climbing was much bigger than a sport and mm. this performance driven thing yeah there were many many more elements to it and and it was could be a much more holistic practice than that so yeah the lakes opened my eyes to that and then it just deepened really I suppose especially when I moved up to Scotland a couple of years later and was living in the Cairngorms and was out all the time climbing loads I was just at a stage there in my climbing where I was just obsessed with getting better and I just really wanted to be a really competent lead climber so I could build my confidence and climb above my gear and lead these routes that were well within my physical ability but have the head and the psychology in the right place to feel comfortable doing that without a rope above me. I guess I kind of passed through that stage and then you know another level of obsession opened up where suddenly Yeah, opening my eyes to all the climbs across Scotland and all the mountains and all those cliffs and all those crags that have got so many names and so many roots and so much history and and getting to them is so much harder than climbing south of the border because there's such long walk-ins and that the climbing, you know, just opens your eyes to a really different way of seeing the landscape where, you know, I'd been much more comfortable walking into the mountains before that, but then something started to shift and and I found walking I suppose a little bit boring I was way more curious about what would happen on those rocks and what sort of movements I needed to pull out of my body to complete those sequences and that's a summer thing like it's Mm. it's summer rock climbing in Scotland and the summer season is quite short which lends itself quite well to that obsessive intensity you know where where when the weather's good and the conditions are good you've just got to go out and you've got to get that hit before the long winter comes and it's all quite gray and damp Mm. and dreek and you don't want to go out so there's that seasonal fluctuation and then you know then there's just other aspects of life that kind of move in and you have different enthusiasms for different things at other stages of life I mean I know a number of climbers who like their obsession and their psych as the climbers were called just doesn't seem to go doesn't seem to end at all um but it's not like that for me no I have times when I'm really on it and really into it and all I want to do is climb and then other times when there are a lot of other things I want to do have you ever had periods where you haven't wanted to climb at all um yeah they've maybe lasted about a week (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a no (laughs) Yeah, when I finished Time on Rock, actually, I did have a bit of a like, oh, so this is right in this book. When I finished the manuscript, yeah, I was pretty, I was quite burned out from writing it. And I'd also been writing it through lockdown, which, I mean, ask anyone about mental health during lockdown, it was bad. And then ask about mental health, writing a book, also not great. So those two things combined um, meant it was quite quite a strain and by the end I was just like oh no I don't want to climb I don't like climbing but that lasted 
maybe two weeks. Okay. Uh, and then I spent the entire summer running around Scotland, climbing, climbing, okay. climbing, 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 until at the end of the season, by like late September, I was just praying for the rain to come in because my body was so fatigued mm-hmm. and I knew I needed to shift into doing something else because everything hurt. <laughs> So it's interesting what you're saying there, because you picked up on when you were talking about wanting to become a really competent lease climber, you picked up on the difference between what you're able to do physically versus what you're able to do psychologically. And then at the end, when you're just talking there, it's clear that other things about psychology can have effect other than fear as well, right, on, on your climbing. So I guess I kind of wanted to ask you about that psychological element. Yeah, I mean, the, the psychology of climbing It's partly, I think, what makes it such a brilliant activity because it's so encompassing. And, you know, I see it as as a bit like a game of chess where you've got all these parts and all this strategy that you've got to solve, but it's embodied chess. You know, you're you're working with all of your body and its capabilities and its strength and its movement and its ability. And that completely varies depending on the time of day your mood with women our hormonal cycle there are so many variables that go into it and that makes it I think especially interesting you know it's, it's a physical challenge and it's a mental one that you're trying to solve and it's interesting what you said there about women climbing in particular and you've mentioned Helen Mort's book as well which I which I wanted to ask you about so Helen Mort's book for people who haven't read it is called A Line Above the Sky and to give a bit of context it does a stunningly good job really um, of reflecting on how parenting and giving birth can have a big effect on climbing ability and experience and she reflects on that based on her own experience and through the lens of a climber called Alison Hargreaves I don't know if I've got a very specific question there, but I just wanted to ask you for your view, I guess, on on that aspect of, of Helen's book. I think it's such an important book. It's, it's so important to be bringing that into the foreground bit because, you know, women's experiences are completely different to men's because of the different ways that our bodies work and, and the life experiences we go through. And so much of mountain literature historically has been written by men and therefore there just isn't that balanced representation of of what happens and so yeah it was very exciting to read that book and to see those things put in there in a book about the mountains. A couple of the other things that we were going to talk about in relation to climbing so we had a little bit of a list one of which was life events such as parenting and then we were also thinking about talking about the effects of injury and death on climbers individually I guess and then also the climbing community and could I ask you maybe to talk a little bit about your experiences of that or your views on that? Yeah I mean it's a necessary part of the climbing world go down the wall any any night of the week and you'll hear any number of climbers whinging about the injuries you know whether it's uh, they've got some fingers taped up or they've got a shoulder that's a bit out or their knees Oh, the older guys with their dodgy knees or their dodgy hips and um, yeah like you know I climb with there are a number of men that I go out with who are older and in their day they've been incredible climbers mm. cutting edge putting up stuff and and climbing really has been their life for years and years and years and now 
they're older and you know they've got knee replacements or they need hip replacements and so their mobility and and their strength and their flexibility is is going and yeah it's it's funny seeing that you know that change that happens and you know there's the very caring side of me that that cares for these older older guys and and hopes that they can find something else that will give them the meaning and the joy that they got from climbing that they just can't get anymore because their bodies aren't up to it and so their minds also are not in it when they're climbing because it's it's too challenging for them sure um and then yeah in terms of death yeah if you've been a mountaineer and a climber for long enough you'll know people that have died Mm. in the hills yeah I've got a couple of friends who have gone and um yeah it's sobering it is very sobering Mm. it's it's obviously a huge it's a tragedy because often they're young so the two Mm. two people I know friends of mine who have died one of them he was 33 and he died in the Cairngorms falling on an mm. ice route. And then my other friend, he died not very long ago at falling out of a tree on the Jubilee weekend. Yeah. Um, and he was, yeah, late 30s, mid to late 30s. So, yeah, quite young again. I'm really sorry to hear that. Um, yeah, is it's, it? it's sad. It is sad. And there's no getting around that. But it's also, it's in the nature of life that people die. And Mm. zooming out from this with these two men as individuals, you know, we've, through like the NHS and stuff, and and what a safe society we live in, we're really protected from death Mm. in terms of like experiencing it. It's, It's quite exceptional, really to know many people who have died whereas you know in the past there would have been a much higher mortality rate which is one of the like strange and brilliant things about the world that we currently live in in the UK and so yeah in some ways there's that thing with climbing and mountaineering that there is that touch of real life realism if you know what I mean like you are going out to do Mm. something dangerous and you are living closer to your mortality perhaps than those who maybe spend their Saturday afternoons sat on a sofa and and that, and that's not necessarily a bad thing you know I was chatting to a guy the other day god he had an incredible story the first time he went up Anchelach it's a beautiful mm. mountain in the highlands a man fell in front of him and and basically died with him oh my goodness he was there with him when he had his last breath and it's obviously shocking and and unsettling but he said actually he found it like oddly quite calming you know to be there with this mm. man while he was having his last breaths mm. and my pal who died in the Cairngorms his I found yeah a very funny thing really and this is like the smallness of the mountaineering community as well which is something that I like basically that was a number it was before I was living in Scotland he died on that route and then a few years later I'd moved up to Scotland and was in with this crew of climbers and found out basically that one of them had been there when Pete had fallen right and and he'd actually yeah seen it all happen and yeah which was just very moving and I don't know it brings brings that sense of of people quite close together 
So this reminds me, and I'm kicking myself because it's really famous and I've forgotten both the name of the climber and the name of the film, um, which isn't <laughs> I recently watched the documentary film about the really famous climber who broke his leg after being cut. So his partner cut his rope because he'd fallen. Touching the void. Touching the void, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I recently watched that. <laughs> So one of the things that Joe Simpson says in that film, that one of the things that kept him going as he kind of crawled back towards where he hoped the tent still was, was the thought that he might still die, but that he wanted to be with someone when that happened. Yeah. So that point about the community rings really true, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's just this, there is something very humane about climbing and it's a level of humanity that, we sort of lost touch with, I think, in some of the ways that we're, you know, our lives have become a lot safer and cleaner. Moving on, it's got a bit more than it has to do a gear change after that. <laughs> what I did want to pick up on is something that you mentioned um, when you were talking about your time in Cumbria, and that's when you said that you kind of really started thinking about climbing as a way of life. Because you say in the book, there's this really interesting chapter or passage where you talk about meeting people there who were locals and who were also climbers but who were different from the kind of Gore-Tex wearing out-of-towners. Could you tell me a little bit about the differences between those groups of people? So yeah they just have a very different ethos and and it's the local culture that you'll find there and and there aren't many of them because you know there's just this sheer weight of tourism is and and second homes means there's very few but they're there and once once you're in their circle it's it is very enjoyable and you get all kinds of stories like there's a a very strong storytelling culture there Mm. it's it's not like the instagram culture where you know you you do your event at the weekend and then you get home and you tweet about it which is you know or insta about it which is another way of of story sharing but there you know the story sharing is done much more face to face where you will be in the pub and you will be sharing the crack with whoever else is there and so i guess yeah in some ways that's yeah less digital way Mm. of being and it's yeah it's very physical Mm. it's very rugged it's very of the land and one of the many strings to your bow which also relates to Cumbria is that you also completed a PhD at Leeds University which was about Wordsworth's interactions with communities in Cumbria could I ask you if there are connections between your climbing your time in Cumbria and and that topic yeah, good question. So that the PhD is called Wordsworth Creativity in Cumbrian Communities. Mm. And it was with the University of Leeds and the Wordsworth Trust. So I spent a year living in Grasmere at the museum there on site and, and learning from them. Yeah, it was, a, it was a fantastic project to be on. It was so interesting. It was social history. It was literature. It was archival research. And then it was also work with the living community in the present day to see how people responded to his poetry today so it was looking at how the people of Cumbria had shaped his poetry in the past and and where their influence could be seen within his very famous poems that so many people see as just nature poems and see him as the nature poet and don't see those people in them so it was it was exciting to be discovering those people and finding out the stories of, of who those characters were and how Wordsworth had changed them or edited them or or how he was kind of bringing in these certain character types and 
stylizing the lakes and and so then it was intriguing to be meeting the present day locals and yeah. seeing how they compared to the ones that he'd been capturing 200 years before yeah and then of course like through living there I was out all the time so I'd be out walking in the hills and the valleys and really getting that embodied knowledge of the landscapes that he was writing about and that he was living in and just being completely physically immersed within there and and there it's it is just such a rocky Mm. landscape it's we call it the Lake District but it's full of rock yeah and and rock to me was it was partly escape while I was there it was a way of of getting out of the PhD mentality it was a way of getting out of work it was a way of going to do something very different and and focusing on you know short-term projects that I could complete quite quick quickly and sat in a very satisfying way whereas a PhD rumbles on and on and on and those thoughts rumble on and on and on and and also it's a way of of getting climbing can take you away from the mainstream a bit which in the Lake District with it being so popular and so well-trodden and so photographed and so written about, so culturally layered, so thick with culture that it's quite hard to escape that and have your own personal experience of it as well. And so The Rock gave me that because I could just get on and lose myself and be very physically immediately present in, in something that was for me. And you said there about climbing offering a way of getting away from the mainstream getting away from the busier areas are there any wildernesses on your list that you haven't yet been to or maybe that you'd like to return to yes I am scheming at the moment actually (laughs) that is very true I really want to go up to the Faroe Islands I don't know if I climb there I think the rock is really bad quality I think it's very loose and full of vegetation and seabirds that vomit on you so I probably won't (laughs) won't go to climb but yeah I'd love to go up to some of these islands up north like Faroe and Greenland and some of the Norwegian ones I think that would be fascinating I love the light in those northern Mm. places when it just extends right through the summer nights and that sense of being somewhere very other this is bringing the tone down given that you've just said something quite profound about the space that you want to go and visit but did you just say that there were sea beds that vomit on you sea birds yeah (laughs) almost a little buggers yeah you get them on the ledge and they will just spew and spew at you as a climber oh wow yeah an extra challenge (laughs) avoid the former and like the vomit is really like really really obnoxious it stinks <laughs> and it's really hard to wash it out of your clothes <laughs> you're really selling it yeah yeah don't plan on pharaoh probably <laughs> <laughs> and i can't let you go without at least mentioning the very exciting news at the end of july that time and rock has been shortlisted for the wainwright prize which for anyone who doesn't know is a highly highly prestigious prize for nature writing with previous winners that include Robert McFarlane, James Rebanks, those kinds of people. How does that success feel? Well, it's a dream come true. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's so, so delightful. I mean, yeah, pleased to bits. It's, it's nice, you know, it's the Wainwright Prize and having lived in the Lake District, you know, I know mm. all of that background and, and all of those hills. And, you know, I did also write this book very much with... A female perspective in mind and knowing that so much nature writing and mountain literature has been written by men and that we need more books by women and yeah. and so I wanted to write something 
you know, that would show that woman's perspective, but I also wanted it to be really good. <laughs> you know, so it, yeah, it's not just, you know, oh, well, we've got a woman's book, but it doesn't yeah. compare and it can't compete yeah. with the men's. Like, it's fantastic to have it up there in that shortlist and knowing that, oh, right, yeah, it does really hold its own ground and, and hopefully this can offer something for the future. This other book that I'm very excited by. Can I talk about that? Of course you can. It's by a young writer called Faye Latham. She's from North Wales but lives in London. And she's done this amazing book. So she's using this old old mountaineering text called British Mountaineers that was written in 1949. So it's a very like old classic yeah. mountaineering book, you know, all about the history of British mountaineering and how <laughs> the British were the ones to invent it and how we got up Everest and did this and that. And yeah. it's a great, great classic book, you know, beautiful illustrations and but very much of that male colonial mm-hmm. mountaineering tradition, which is where mountaineering has come from. Yeah. And Faye took this book during lockdown and played with it and has transformed it to create a completely new text. It's a style of poetry known as erasure. So you erase lots and lots and lots of words. So she used tipex, she used pens, she used red threads to get rid of lots of words. And she's essentially found a new story and a new voice within this book. So it sort of calls into question some of the old assumptions within the old book. Um, yes. it's, you know the, the voice that she's brought out there's a lot more emotion a lot more uncertainty a lot more doubt mm. which are, are things that are completely suppressed and completely absent from those older more confident authoritative texts back in the day you reminded me saying about the lack of emotion in those kind of older texts because I read again I can't remember the name of it but it doesn't really matter I read another one a mountaineering book recently which was similar period and it's the tale of how they were climbing a certain face and then they got to the top and allowed themselves a handshake (laughs) (laughs) and it just really tickled me like there was no celebration no like hug several of them had nearly died none of that (laughs) yes we'll allow ourselves a handshake exactly yeah Yeah, that's the stiff upper lip and then the sort of occasional hint of a little bit of ironic humor is sort of the most you get from these texts and and that sort of frozen mountain literature in this particular mode that's that's quite masculine and it's quite officer class and and it's you know suppressing a, a lot of other aspects of the experience and so it's fantastic to have this new book from Faye which is out in September that's completely challenging and undermining and and playing with that you know it's it's a very playful book it's it's slightly political and slightly polemical but it's also just doing this great work of questioning the past and the tradition that we've inherited. 